Jesus is king. Jesus is king. He is cosmic king of creation. He is king in the line of David, king of Israel. He is Messiah king. He is the great foretold saviour king. And he is the king of peace. And today in our passage there before us on page 878, we, meet, we see his arrival. The arrival of King Jesus. And the question for us this morning is this. How will we receive him? How will we receive Jesus as king? Will he receive from us a welcome, a welcome of praise? Or will he receive rejection? I think it is the most pressing question in all places at all time in all of history. Christian or not this morning, this is very pressing. And I hope that we'll see that as we walk through this arrival scene together. Luke, or Dr. Luke, as some have taken to calling him, is absolutely meticulous in recording key details for us in Jesus' life and in his ministry. And Luke, I think, has got two big things he wants us to see this morning. I think that God wants us to see. And the first thing I think we desperately need to see this morning is that it is unmistakable. It is unmistakable that Jesus is king. It is unmistakable that Jesus is king. All the details here that Bev read for us uh, demonstrate that Jesus is claiming to be king. From the preparations that are made to the, the actions and response of the crowds and the acclamations they make, Jesus is king. Every detail points to it, planned and prepared to do so. So look at verse 29. Uh, look where Jesus sets off from. Where does Jesus set off from? Anyone see that? The Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives. Now, uh, you might think that's just a nice uh, topical kind of point, a nice historical point. And if it were only that, that would be fine. But Luke tells us Jesus planned to be there to descend from the Mount of Olives on his arrival to the city. Jesus has choreographed every detail. You see, there's a prophecy in the Old Testament, in the book of Zechariah, in chapter 14, that God's promised king would arrive at the city from, where? The Mount of Olives. He would descend that hill to bring bring justice on the nations, for the nations, and to restore the people of God. Jesus is walking the path of the king. Okay? It is unmistakable. And then you notice this surprising detail. Jesus, this guy who walks everywhere, suddenly decides that he is going to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. Isn't that that interesting? (laughs) Jesus had walked everywhere. Scan Luke's gospel, I dare you, and try and see if you can find a moment where Jesus does anything but walk. When does Jesus ever do it? He just walks everywhere. (laughs) He never rides. But now, now, all of a sudden, Jesus is determined, fascinated, must ride into Jerusalem and ride on a donkey. This is a planned Highly symbolic gesture. Jesus intends here to fulfill the prophecy Steve read for us at the beginning of the service. In Zechariah again, 9 verse 9, the Messiah king would enter Jerusalem on a donkey. Ride on a donkey. You see, we've got the stage notes here for the drama. (laughs) But 
But Jesus here is showing us that he is the king. Everything here happens at his direct, direction, doesn't it? Jesus must ride into king in, into Jerusalem as king. Now, some of us here this morning will object now. Oh, how convenient, you say. What a coincidence that Jesus should enter Jerusalem on a donkey. Surely anyone could do that. I mean, don't you Christians see? He's gaming the system. He's planning to fulfill the prophecies. You guys are mugs. Surely you've got to be sceptical about all this stuff in the Bible. I mean, put it all together. It's like a con, doesn't it? That's a very serious objection, isn't it? Is Jesus a fake, a fraud, or is he, is he the real deal? What, what's going on here? It's, it's very serious. Well, I think we must respond to this as we look at this passage, mustn't we? And I think we must say, who said that deliberate, deliberately fulfilling prophecy is a bad thing? I mean, surely the prophecies were made for a reason. Surely the prophecies must be fulfilled on purpose, uh, mustn't they? Oh, you say, yeah, but that doesn't help us. He could still be a fraud. Give up. Consign Jesus to history. Well, perhaps, but let's look at how Jesus fulfills those prophecies. We should notice in the Bible, as, and in the Gospels in particular, that as Jesus fulfills prophecies, as he walks into Jerusalem on a donkey, that not everything Jesus does is expected. I mean, if Jesus were the expected Messiah, he would have done the donkey, but he would have come with anti-Roman rhetoric and propaganda. That's the kind of Messiah Israel thought they were going to have. But there's none of that. Jesus fulfills prophecies in expected ways, here with the donkey, and unexpected ways. You notice here, for example, that Jesus sends two disciples, doesn't he? Two disciples to go and get the donkey. Well, later in Luke's gospel, Jesus is going to send two disciples ahead of himself again to prepare an upper room for the Last Supper. He's going to explain to his disciples that he's going to have to die for sin. And the disciples don't get it. This isn't what Messiah King is supposed to do in their minds. Do you see? Jesus fulfills prophecies in a very unique way, in both expected ways and unexpected ways. And we must also say this morning that that these prophecies were in fact actually very difficult to fulfill. I mean, consider this. Jesus has been walking through the Judean countryside and through Galilee for three years. How does he know that at this moment, when he wants to arrive in Jerusalem, show he's the king, how does he know there's going to be a donkey there for him? And, and look at the details as well. A very particular donkey that's never been ridden on before. How would he know? Unless, of course, he is the king, the one who comes in the name of the Lord. You see? This account is showing us Jesus is the king unmistakably. Look at the details. Look, verse 30, Jesus sends the disciples ahead. Go into the village in front of you, where on entering it, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks why are you untying it, you shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it, just as he had told them, and as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. Do you see, Jesus here has prophetic foreknowledge. And he has divine control. 
He is the king of the cosmos. He is the king of creation. Every moment moves at his command. He fulfills these prophecies because he really is the king God promised. He can send his disciples to a place he's never been to, as far as we know, to release a donkey he has never met, that has never been ridden on, with the exact words to have it released. The Lord has need of it. So he can go on his royal journey to release the captives from sin and death. He is king, unmistakably the king of creation, the king of Israel on a donkey. The exact promises fulfilled. Jesus is king unmistakably. We see it in the preparations, but we see it also in how the crowd of disciples respond to him, what they do next and their cries. So that Jesus has made the preparations and what happens next follows by necessity, without command. Look at verse 35. I love this little moment. Look at verse 35. They brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. Did Jesus tell them to put him on the donkey? No, no, he didn't. (laughs) It's like the donkey arrives, and the disciples have got some mental arithmetic to do. Um, Jesus, donkey, city. Ah, he's the king. He goes on the donkey. Do you see? And the scene follows, and there's people throwing cloaks on the road. Interesting, Luke doesn't mention the palm branches or children being there. Luke's not too concerned about that. He records in verse 36, cloaks on the road. Do you know the only other place where cloaks are thrown on the road in the Bible? It's in the book of Kings, when a guy called Jehu processes into town to be king. You see? He's king. Luke wants us to see he is king. And look at the cries of the crowd too. Verse 37, as Jesus was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. To see the crowd go wild can think of those processions in London, of royal processions where people get excited, or where they used to get excited at the arrival of the Queen. Um, euphoria. Well, this is one such moment, isn't it? The crowds are thrilled. They are singing. They are crying. Now, why? Well, of course, in part because of the donkey, because of the symbolism. But look why Luke says they, they sing and cry. I think this is important. They praise God in a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. Here are cries for a king who is like no other. The disciples had seen the kind of power Jesus had. They had seen that Jesus had the power to make blind men see and the lame leap for joy. And now that person is going to be king on the donkey. You see, they're praising him. They recognize he's claiming to be king, and they are ecstatic. Why? Because of the mighty works he had done. They praise him, not just for his power, but for how he had used it. They'd seen Jesus bring liberty to the captives, good news for the poor. And now this one, this person, is going to be king. They rejoice. Of course they do. 
They cry out, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They cry out with the words of Psalm 118. It's a royal enthronement psalm used for enthroning kings. They're crying, it's true, it's true, it's true. He's going to be king. That one's going to be king. Didn't you see what he did? You see how people are crying for joy and leaping and dancing like they've never done before because he's king and he's saviour and he rescues. He changes lives. And that one is going to be king. It's the enthronement of the real king, the true king. Their reactions make it unmistakably clear. Jesus is king. The king of kings. And the question is, how will we receive him? How will we receive him? Now, some of us here hear passages like this. And I think immediately we hear it and we almost do the opposite of the passage. (laughs) So here there's rejoicing and some of us hear this and we go, oh, I'm not really rejoicing much in Jesus these days. I'm not full of joy. I'm not full of inward, spontaneous celebration. And uh, some of us here this morning will start making a little prescription for ourselves. A three-week course, uh, maybe make it a three-month course, actually of um, better try harder to welcome Jesus. Now, if that's you this morning, I want to speak specifically to you here. Do you see how the reactions to Jesus as king here, the welcome, do you see how it doesn't turn on effort? Please see that. It isn't, they're not trying, they're not mustering all their strength to praise Jesus as king. It's not effort that makes them do it. Their reactions come as they see and know who Jesus is. They know who he is and that that one will be king. We will only rejoice in Jesus when we know him. When we have seen him and seen what he's like. Maybe you think this morning, I I can't see myself in that crowd. Welcoming Jesus, rejoicing. Or maybe the truth is that you don't need to beat yourself up for that this morning. But you just need to look at Jesus. You just need to see him. Maybe the truth is we haven't been looking very much at Jesus. Well, if that's you, can I encourage you to do just that? Spend time in the Gospels. Dwell in the stories of who Jesus is. Have them on your heart. Rehearse them. Speak them to yourself. Talk about them. Here's something for Grace Church we could do. Ask one another. I had a friend who who used to do this. Ask one another. What's your favourite story about Jesus? The one who would be king. And as you tell the story, the stories thrill our hearts, and they'll thrill the other person's heart. And tell each other the stories. And we'll rejoice in Jesus. We thought, what encouragement that would be for us. Oh, that's your favourite. Oh, let me tell you about my favourite. And he's king, you know, he's king. He's saviour king. The one God promised, it's him. It's him. How wonderful that would be for us in our life as a church. How will you receive Jesus as king? Will you welcome him? Well, you'll need to see him. You'll need to know him in order to rejoice in him. Because Jesus is a certain kind of person who's going to be a certain kind of king. And it's unmistakable that he is the king here. He's the king of peace. Riding on the donkey, not the war horse, the donkey. And so the crowds declare, blessed is the king, the one who comes in the name of the Lord.
Notice um, that the crowds cry out, peace in heaven. Can you see that little detail? Peace in heaven, glory in the highest. They rejoice here. Do you remember um, at the beginning, the angels cried to the shepherds, um, peace on earth? Do you remember that? Well, now Jesus arrives in Jerusalem to cries of peace in heaven. They rejoice because Jesus is going to do something in this city for all who believe to make peace happen in heaven. Jesus' kingship is going to affect heaven. Jesus enters a city where he's killed to keep the peace. Of course, killing Jesus is not an act of peace, is it? It's an act of war. But that warring murder of Jesus will make peace in heaven. See that too this morning, friends. See that Jesus here is on a journey. A journey for you. Even if perhaps this morning you're still at war with God. And that may be the reaction of some of us, actually. This morning that we think about our reaction to Jesus and and we realize we're rejecting him. Well, here is the second point for us today. It's unmistakable here that Jesus is king, and so he should be praised. But it's also here that we see unmistakably ignorant rejection. We see here, too, unmistakably ignorant rejection of Jesus as king. Jesus has shown up as king, and he is king of peace, and he's rejected. Um, It's noticeable in the things that are there. It's also noticeable in the things that aren't there. So apparently in those days, if you were... um, a significant figure in community life, a community leader, a noble or something, if you came to visit a city, you'd be welcomed outside the city, much like we welcome people at Heathrow Airport, if they're important, right? You'd be welcomed outside the city, you'd be escorted in, there'd be organised fanfare, well, here there's only a bunch of disciples, and there'd be meals and speeches. There's nothing of that here, is there? Who are the ones in the scene? Crowds of disciples and a few Pharisees two, maybe three. Jesus here is being ignored. There is unmistakable ignorant rejection of Jesus here. The political elites, the priests, there's hardly anyone here to see this most important moment of prophetic fulfillment. Jesus is being spurned, it's clear. And, and look, at the, look at the Pharisees who are there. Look at what they say. They make their feelings clear, don't they? Look at verse 39. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. For the Pharisees, they don't see it, do they? This hoo-ha isn't right, Jesus. Rebuke your disciples. They might think it's blasphemy, Jesus um, claiming to be king. We know they certainly think that by the end of the story. They might think, too, oh, this is just not clever, Jesus. Declaring yourself as king in front of the Romans, you're going to get everyone in trouble. What are you doing? Well, it's clear that for whatever reason, the Pharisees think Jesus and his disciples need to be rebuked and rejected. Jesus is a religious and political threat to their power. They won't cede any power, and so they want to reject Jesus. And Jesus replies, doesn't he? Verse 40, he sees the rejection. It's obvious. I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. What a reply. Uh, One Bible commentator says there's a couple of ways you could take this business about the stones. He says there's a verse in Habakkuk, in the book of Habakkuk 2, verse 11, where when we see stones cry out in the Bible, they cry out in judgment. Maybe the stones cry out in Jesus' mind, how dare you? How dare you tell the crowds to be silent? This is the king. 
geology should not have to do theology. <laughs> How dare you? And there's also a sense, and this is what we labored on in the Bible by a few weeks ago, that the stones cry out, well, why do they cry out in praise? If these were silent, the stones would cry out. It is so right that Jesus is crowned as king and praised. But even if humans don't do it, the inanimate world will do it instead. Jesus is being rejected here, ignorantly so. Don't you see all of nature would cry out in praise? What are you doing? Either way, it's, it's rejection of Jesus. And it's, it, it, I find it so ironic here, because all through the gospel, Jesus has been saying, shh, shh, don't tell anyone who I am. All the way through. And now the Pharisees want to go, shh. And Jesus says, no, the time for, time for this is finished. Now I must be seen as king. Now the truth that I am king must echo all the way down the Mount of Olives to the places of power. So that what needs to happen can happen. And it's ignorant rejection, isn't it? And we see that again because as Jesus walks down the Mount of Olives, there's tears in his eyes. The gear change, isn't it? Praise to tears. Jesus knows this is rejection and he knows what it'll mean. Look at verse 42. He cries for the city he is entering. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes, he says. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they'll not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus weeps. He weeps for this city. They don't know what makes for peace. And they don't know that God is visiting them. And so they ignorantly, mistakenly, reject the king of peace. I was thinking about this um, this week. And thinking about the president of Ukraine. Uh, what's his name now? Vladimir Zelensky. He visited us in the UK, didn't he? In February, I think. Um, and he was welcomed to Parliament. A pretty large gathering in Parliament. He gave a speech about wanting some aircrafts and so on. Now imagine um, Zelensky came to the UK again, and imagine no one came to the airport to greet him. Imagine there was no invite to Parliament. Imagine there was no invite to Buckingham Palace or to the UN. Imagine Zelensky comes to the UK or the USA or whatever, and we simply turn our backs on him. He is in our day, I suppose. He's a key feature. He is almost the president of peace, isn't he? Without him and his nation at the moment, well, who knows what would come next? To reject Zelensky is to say, well, we'll just let war happen then. He's the president of peace, you might say. You see, to ignorantly turn your back on him will create war. And the religious leaders here do the same, don't they? He is the king of peace with God. And they reject him. And so there'll be war in the end. By AD 70, Jerusalem will be destroyed. The Romans will crush them in the end. And it'll be an act of the judgment of God. And so Jesus weeps here. There is ignorant rejection. It's unmistakable. And you know, so much rejection of Jesus today is simply ignorant. Unmistakably ignorant. And it leads to judgment. 
And if we're not sure about that, just look at the sign Jesus performs when he completes his arrival in Jerusalem, entering the temple. Look at verse 45 to 48. Jesus entered the temple, began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house should be a house of prayer, but you made it a den of robbers. He was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. They didn't find anything they could do. All the people were hanging on his words. Here it is in the city. There are leaders in power. And they're seeking to use it for their own advantage and protect it violently. They do. Actually, isn't that each and every one of us when, we, when it comes down to it? We have our power and we will protect it come what may. And it seems that under the watch of the priests and the Pharisees, traders have gained access to the temple. And they'll charge anyone anything and the establishment will get rich off the back of it. No wonder they didn't want to upset the Romans. No wonder they want to reject Jesus. But Jesus drives them out. The temple was supposed to be a place of prayer for the oppressed. Instead, it's become like a criminal oppressor's lockup. It's their fiefdom. It's their hidey hole. But now Jesus drives them out. He takes control of the temple. There's nothing they can do about it because it's his space now. Everyone hangs on his every word there. Do you see here it's a symbolic act, isn't it? Again, another symbolic act. That they've rejected Jesus and so their rejection's coming. They think they're, they're secure, but Jesus just clears them out. There's unmistakably an ignorant decision to reject Jesus. See, the disciples welcomed the arrival of Jesus that day. They saw who Jesus was, the mighty deeds he'd done. And they welcome Jesus with praise. But these people will not see who Jesus is, will they? They they are determined they will not see who Jesus is so they can protect their own power. They can't see the true power of the one who comes giving up his power. So here's the challenge for us. There's a challenge for us here, isn't there? I think there's a challenge for us, for each and every one of us. I think there's also a bit of a challenge here for churches and church leadership too, I think. Let me offer a few challenges from from this. Firstly, let me say, if you're not a Christian here this morning, there's a challenge, isn't there? This could be you. It could be that you are ignorantly rejecting Jesus. Now you say, oh, well, that can't be right because I'm here in church, Ollie. I'm I'm not ignorant. I'm I'm here in church. (laughs) Well, there were a few Pharisees there that day too. They were there. That, that's not the issue. See, these, these people in this passage are ignorant, not, not because they don't know anything about Jesus, but because they willfully want to get rid of Jesus, reject him. They don't want to have Jesus claim on their lives. They don't want Jesus to threaten them in any way, their security, their relationships, their power, their stuff. You might be here this morning worrying that Jesus will affect your life, and so the guard is up. There's not praise is a God. You might worry that Jesus will affect your life. Well, guess what? He, he will. <laughs> he, he, he definitely will. But truth matters regardless, doesn't it? You might have your reasons to, to be on your guard against Jesus. You, you might think he's going to have implications on my sex life, on my money. That shouldn't affect our objectivity, though, should it? The truth is, I think, many in our society today spend... Much of our time trying to defend our supposed freedoms. 
rather than searching for the truth. And it turns out that the freedoms many people spend so much time trying to protect are actually imprisoning them. Because they can't search for truth. They can't even just look at Jesus. Their freedoms actually are, it turns out, pretty limiting. And look at these Pharisees. They're defending their power, aren't they? But they're so insecure. They're they're the most, seem like the most powerless people here. Oh, Jesus, rebuke your disciples. I mean, seriously, what are they worried about? If it's true, follow where it leads. If it's true, it'll be worth it, won't it? There's a challenge for us here if we're not Christians. I think there's a challenge here too if you are a Christian and if you call yourself a Christian. Because here's Jesus and he arrives as king. King of peace, come to save, and there's rejoicing. And the trouble is that some of us as Christians who call ourselves Christians read a passage like this and we find probably the truth is that we're more like the Pharisees than the band of disciples. You see, we notice that we've got the power over our lives <laughs> and we're kind of hermetically sealing bits of our life off from Jesus. Have you noticed that you do that? Jesus can be king, but he doesn't mean to be king of everything, does he? Not king of my purse, not king of my gossip, not king of my jealousy. He doesn't mean to, no, really, the teacher, rebuke your disciples. Maybe that's you this morning. Well, if that is, again, we need to see who Jesus is, that he's the king, that he's the king of peace, the king who came to the cross. And if you haven't lived with him as king, if you aren't living with him really as king of everything, as Lord, well, you can confess your struggles and your sin to him. He's the king that made this crowd rejoice. You are safe with him. And turning to him, you will find that when you welcome him, you find joy in him. The crowds enjoy him. They revel in him. They've never seen peace and freedom like this. The challenge to us is, will we let go of the things we're holding on to so tightly to find the kind of joy that they've got? Have you welcomed Jesus as king in all areas of your life? This passage warns us against ignorant rejection of Jesus I think lastly, there is a warning here too for church leaders. The willful rejection of Jesus, the ignorant willful rejection of Jesus is in the leadership here, isn't it? The corruption of the temple, the monopoly of the few preserving what they've got. And it is possible, isn't it, for that sort of behavior, that sort of attitude to come into the church impenetrable, closed-off power structures where some people are disempowered so that others might be empowered, where others are excluded. Now, friends, listen, the leadership at Grace Church, the elders and the deacons, I can promise you this, we are not going to give you the thrill of joy that the crowds had that day in Jesus. We are not Jesus. (laughs) But our leadership should reflect Jesus' leadership. We should be pointing to life in him, the kind of freedom there is in him, how he uses his power such that people can not be crushed but empowered and enjoy life in the church. Leadership that excludes, that furthers the oppression of others. Well, if it's anything like this behavior of the Pharisees here, it it is to be thrown out. In other words, church leaders can behave like Pharisees too. And if that's the case, 
they need to hear a warning here this morning, don't they? Well, to conclude, this passage shows us unmistakably Jesus is king. And this passage shows us unmistakably ignorant rejection of Jesus. And the key question is, how will we welcome him? Will we receive him with praise? Or will we reject him? This should all hang, shouldn't it? Not on us. Not on our prejudices. Not on our idea of power. Not on what we think makes for peace and rescue. Our response to Jesus should be based on him. On who he is. On how he is fulfilling the promises of God. That he has come to set us free. There's euphoria in this passage. But there's also devastating rejection, isn't there? There's a line at the end, isn't there? That the chief priests are trying to destroy Jesus. As we close, just think on this. That all that takes place here is deliberate. All that takes place here is intentional. Jesus is making it unmistakably clear that he's king. So that we can trust him and so that he can die. Jesus is going to die to be the greatest king of peace this world has ever known. The king of kings, conquering sin and death itself. As he walks into that city and faces that rejection, he does it for you and me. To the glory of God. Jesus is king. King of kings. King of peace. How will you welcome him? Shall we pray? Father, thank you that in this passage there is cause to praise Jesus as king like no other king. Thank you here that Jesus is the one who uses his power to set the captives free. Thank you that he came to rescue. Thank you that Jesus is the king of peace. And Father, we ask that we might let go of all those reasons and all those things that we have to hold back from him. We ask that we would be those that when we see Jesus, we rejoice in him. Help us in this, help us in it as a church, we pray. In Jesus' strong name. Amen.